0: My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all of your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and tell of your power, to make known to the children your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord.
1: time, Savannah and I had friends getting married, and we thought, what is a good friend to do but go to their wedding in Laguna Beach, California? So we went to the airport here in Dallas, and we went to fly there, and if one word defines going to the airport, flying, um, I would choose the word to wait, waiting. Um, Think about it. You have to um, wait to check in your bag or to check in. You have to wait through security, and then sometimes you have to wait more through security. You have to wait at your gate, and if your flight is delayed, you wait even longer. You get on the plane, and you wait to take off. You fly there, and when you land, sometimes you have to wait for a gate, and I'm always the passenger who says, I'll get out right here. I don't, I don't need the gate. Just let me out of the plane. Um, they've advised against that, so... Don't do that. And so you wait a lot when you get there. And so Savannah and I got to our gate. We had done all of our waiting, and uh, first class started to board. And the lady called us to the to like the counter there, and she said, "Let me see your boarding passes." Well, this was confusing. Never experienced this before. So we gave our boarding passes, and she ripped them in two, threw them in the trash, and said, "Please wait over here to the side." Now, I will say, Savannah was holding it together just slightly better than I was. But uh, we were frustrated, to say the least. We had uh, no explanation. Nothing had been told to us. And we were now frustrated. We had waited plenty. So people are getting on the plane, and we have all these questions, right? Are we going to get on the plane? Are we going to get to board? What's going on? Are we getting on a different flight? And we are mad. And so finally, the lady calls us over, and she can tell we're kind of, you know, steamy. And so we're starting to ask these questions, and she just... Politely passes us our boarding passes and says, "Have a nice flight." In which case I'm like, "Yeah, you have a nice flight," and <laughs> she was just going home though. But um, my boarding pass said 1A and Savannah's boarding pass said 1B, and so she had moved us up into first class and was trying to surprise us. But uh, so we quickly, you know, were oh, thank you so much. You are the best. And, <laughs> Well, my name is Cale Courtright. I'm the spiritual formation minister here at Crosspoint, and we are so glad that you are here to worship with us. Uh, Today we're going to talk about waiting. Uh, We're in a a study on the book of Ruth, and so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go over to Ruth chapter 2. But before we get there, I do have a couple of announcements I want to tell you. Now, Jason was up here just a second ago, and he was very polite asking for volunteers for our children's ministry, but let me put it a little differently we need you to volunteer to help serve in our children's ministry. We say it from the pulpit. We say it out there. We say it on our website. We say that we care about kids, and now is the time to show that we care about kids. Um, our children's ministry is a thriving, flourishing ministry here at Cross Point, and so it takes all of us to make that happen. It, it doesn't take just the person to your left or just the person to your right, but we're talking to you. We need your help. And so maybe it means that you go for one month only to serve as a teacher or to lead worship for them. Or maybe you're just the extra adult in the room, but they need a lot of help back there. And so please consider going back there after service to see how you can be of help. And you might have legitimate questions like, I've never taught before. What's this like? Um, and at least we'll be able to answer all of that for you. But we need your help to continue this great and growing ministry. And it's in your bulletin today, but I also want to mention our Summer of Connections events that are coming up. They're going to kick off on June the 3rd with our kickball game. Now, if you're like me, you've been waiting for this for a long time, this game. I've worked at Crosspoint over two years. I've planned two of these events, and both of them have been canceled. So we don't want a drought. And while we're thankful for the rain today, we do not want rain on June 3rd. So uh, you can just add that in your prayers that, yes, we need rain. Not on June 3rd, please. Um, And so we hope that you'll join us for that event. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to it for two years, so hopefully it's a great event that you can all join us at. And so we're talking about waiting. Maybe you've been waiting for an event, or you've been waiting for something. Our, Our kids, I love how they told us about waiting today. But in the book of Ruth, you get a lot of waiting. And what you don't, but from one character, you didn't have any waiting Elimelech in chapter 1, he's Naomi's husband, they notice that there is a famine in the land of Judah, and so he grabs his family and they start to take off. Um, they're in Bethlehem, which translates to the house of, of bread, but in Bethlehem had no scraps of bread left. And so he takes his family, he takes Naomi, his wife, and his two sons, and they run off to Moab. And it is there that his sons are married to Moabite women, um, but then tragedy strikes. Elimelech passes away, and the text tells us that 10 years pass, and then both of Naomi's sons die as well. And so she's left with two daughters-in-law, and one of them decides to stay, and the other, Ruth, commits her life to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. And so they come back to Judah. Judah is no longer in a famine, but when they get there, it is Naomi who left, Naomi whose name means pleasant, but when they get back, she reintroduces herself as Mara, which means bitter. And I hope that no one in here experiences what she has experienced. But she is right in saying that she is bitter. Um, Who wouldn't be? She's lost her husband. She's lost both of her boys. And with that, in their culture and time period, come a lot of other implications. The pain that we would all feel, but also the pain that poverty will bring, because there's no way to bring a livelihood the pain that job also feels and every generation asks the question of god where are you and naomi rightfully asks that question as well where are you god and maybe today you walked in here asking that same question maybe today you've lost a family member maybe you lost a job maybe your marriage is struggling or maybe it's something entirely different But we all have times in our life that we wonder, where is God? And one of the lessons we can learn from Ruth is that he never left. God was there all along. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. We're going to start in Ruth chapter 2. Today, there are three things that I want us to take away from this section of Ruth. And the first is this, to be faithful where you are. So Ruth has committed herself to Naomi, whatever that meant. And that meant for her to leave her home country, to leave her mother and father and to go to Bethlehem. But it also meant that she would be an outsider, that she would be uh, the foreigner in Judah. And it meant that they would be poor together. Um, For all we know, Ruth could have gone home. We don't know what her family is like, but she goes with Naomi And she is faithful where she is. So this is what the text says, starting in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law Elimelech. So if you don't have any, uh, if you've never read this text before, you might think this is weird. This is a different passage. Who wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm just gonna go walk the fields. I'm gonna see what's there. Well, I'll pick up some grain and things like that. And you might actually ask a second question in what kind of landowner allows this to happen? I mean, if it's you or me, we might say, well, that's, my land, it's my grain, and so, and I'm just going to actually keep it all, and it it will all be my profit, or for my family, or what have you. But Boaz is not like that, because Boaz um, is a God-fearing man. Boaz has read the Torah, which says this in Leviticus chapter 19, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vine, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Also, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the bows twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. And when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Remember, you are slaves in the land of Egypt, and that is why I am giving you this command. So God has given this declaration, and Boaz is the kind of man who follows it. And so Ruth is there to gather grain. Now what you see here in this text is that God has set up a sort of safety net. This is his way to care for those who will be easily marginalized or oppressed. The foreigner, the orphan, the widow. Now our characters are, uh, Ruth is two of those three. They're also poor. But in this, there is a message to you and to me as well. See, all throughout Scripture, there are examples like this one in Ruth. There are also instructions like the two we just read, but also in the New Testament of how we are to treat those who are marginalized or oppressed or those who might be marginalized or oppressed. We are to care for those who are widows, who are orphans, or are foreigners, or we might say in our day and age, refugees. These are people that we are called to care for that might be easily marginalized or easily oppressed. And so today I want you to ask yourself a question. How are you individually caring for those kinds of people? And more than that, communally we ask the question as a church, how are we as a body caring for those who might be easily marginalized or oppressed? Because what we see here. Is the text says that Boaz is a godly man, and he is someone who cares for those who might find themselves in that place. And So we, too, want to be like that. Because, see, Ruth qualifies. She's a person who is in poverty. She is a widow, and she is a foreigner. And if you think back to what we just read in Ruth chapter 2, it called her Ruth the Moabite. Nowhere in this passage will the book of Ruth let you forget where Ruth is from. Every time they mention her, it will say that Ruth is from Ruth the Moabite. Always, and I imagine gathering around, this is a Jewish text, I imagine there's Jewish people sitting around a campfire, they're passing down the text, and they don't want them to forget who Ruth is. Now, she's the hero in our story, she's the main character, but she's an outsider. Don't forget for a second while we read these passages, and don't think that Ruth is an insider here. No, they won't let you forget, Ruth is the outsider, she is the Moabite. And last week Tim explained the relationship between the Jews and the Moabites and we'll just say they didn't get along very well. This is who Ruth is. Now here's the deal. Boaz is offering a kindness to to Naomi and Ruth. He's helping them to eat and they probably would have enough to feed themselves that day and maybe the, the couple afterwards. But what they are engaging in is not getting them ahead long term. There is nothing that is happening that is going to feed them for a great stretch of time. So Ruth and Naomi have a problem. They need something more long-lasting than this. Let's keep reading verse 4 of Ruth chapter 2. While she was still there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Church, let me ask you a personal question this morning. Have you ever seen a Hallmark movie? Wow, First Service was all like, yes, we have. Now, I know we got a bunch of guys in here that are acting like macho. Never, I would never choose that. Can we turn that on? Um, You've all seen a Hallmark movie. If not, I'm going to spoil all of them for you. Because guess what? They're all the exact same. I don't care if you're watching one that comes out next week or in Christmas time or whatever. But here's the deal. At 90 minutes long, we're going to have a problem and we're going to resolve it, okay? And more than that, within the first five minutes of the of the movie starting, you're going to know who the main characters are, that they're probably at odds, they greatly dislike each other, but 90 minutes later, they will be in love. This is, this is a true statement. Now, if you've, you heard that, sorry, I just ruined every single one of them for you. Um, but I kind of get that sense right here. We read this passage Boaz comes to his field and he looks up and he sees across the field who is that woman over there he sees Ruth and now you have an idea how this story might be redeemed you have a foreshadowing here to say wait there there might be a possibility and because you've seen a Hallmark movie you hope how this will play out you hope that there will be a love story here because how will Naomi and Ruth be redeemed how will their story turn around how will uh, their story come back from bitterness back to joy? And you believe that Ruth or that Boaz can redeem this story. So Ruth has been faithful to where she is. She finds herself in Judah, she finds herself in poverty, and so she goes to pick uh, grain in the fields. And here comes uh, our second lesson, which is God is in the ordinary. Nothing that Ruth partakes in here is what I would call spectacular. This is an ordinary action. Read how this story continues, verse 6. And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you go gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women. Working in the field, see which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother. And your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So Boaz is generous, he is kind, he's a God fearing man. And Ruth has been faithful where she is. And now what she's engaging in is very ordinary. See, we read in the text that the famine has lifted from Judah. And so Judah is blessed again with food, with enough uh, grain to harvest. But that blessing hadn't been passed to Ruth and Naomi yet. They are people starving in a land full of bread. And now Boaz comes on the scene, and he is able to feed them. But as I said, Ruth is doing something ordinary. This isn't spectacular. Imagine, if you will, she gets up in the morning, and she goes to the fields, and she walks around for a bit, picking up grain. This is what her life looks like. This is, again, this is not a Marvel movie. This is not them doing something spectacular. This is something very ordinary. And sometimes we read this and we want our characters to do something more. We want the Red Sea parting. We want the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. And, and sure, our biblical text has that. But this story is a message of something different. This is very ordinary. And that's not to be confused with mundane or boring but this is ordinary. This is the practice that you engage in. I think sometimes we do this with our own walk with Christ. We think of the spectacular. We think, I'll go on that international mission trip, or I'll do that 40 day fast like Jesus did, or you know what? I will read the Bible in a week. I'll do all of these things. And while those are good things, and I hope you do read the Bible, and I hope you fast, and I hope you get to go on an international mission trip. What happens, the problem is that we start to think about those big events. And we start to think of our life in terms of the next big thing coming. And this played out really well when I was a youth minister. So about this time, we'd be about a month away from our camp that we went to. And kids would start to be getting so excited. They'd be looking so much, so forward to camp. They'd be texting their friends from camp, you know, coordinating outfits so they could dress the same at camp. They'd be wondering, I wonder if she'll be back at camp. I wonder if he'll be back at camp this year. Uh, They'd be getting so excited, and I like to be the kind of youth minister that would remind kids, you know, maybe they were a sophomore, I said, you know, I know you're so excited, but just just remember that you have only three weeks left at camp for the rest of your life. And they would say, how dare you, sir? And I'd go a step further, and i said, you know, our sixth graders, they only get like six or seven weeks at camp for their whole life, that's it. Um, And now, I kind of was doing that uh, tongue-in-cheek, sarcastically, but it's a good reminder that If you went every year, we're not talking about that many weeks. Maybe you go on one of our international mission trips in the summer, and let's say you get to go 26 weeks out of your whole life. That's half a year out of your whole life. And you start to see the problem that if we're only thinking of that next big thing, that next thing that's coming up, we start to forget about all the moments in between. And so as a youth minister, my fear was that they're going to think about camp. That'll be great. They're going to think about our mission trip. But then what next? We have all these moments from this camp till the next one. And I would have kids say, oh, if I could just live at camp. Or they go on a mission. If I could just do this every day. That's not what life is. Life is much more ordinary than that. And what we need to come to realize is that God is in the ordinary. God is at work in the highs for sure. He's at work in our lows, definitely. But he's also at work right in the middle in the ordinary. This has become my favorite quote, and I've shared it with you before from Annie Dillard. It says, How you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. So you look back on the last week, and if you showed us any of us your calendar, we could tell you what was important to you. The time spent doing this activity or that, the time spent in front of the TV or reading your books or whatever, we could show you very quickly what was important to you, even if you yourself weren't aware that it was important to you. Because how you spend... Your day is how you're going to spend your life. You might make it count on something important. But because God works in the ordinary, I would also challenge us that if we have eyes to see, we look back on our days, on our last week, or our last month, you will see that God has been at work. You will see that God has been there the whole time. For instance, Ruth is faithful where she's at. She's going to the field to pick grain. And, you know, she could have chose any field. She could have gone anywhere, anyone that was following the Torah, she could have gone to any field, but she went to Boaz's field. This is an ordinary act that God was working in, and she could have gone on a day that Boaz wasn't going to come by, but Boaz came by on this day, because God is at work in the ordinary. So she could have got home that day, and she could have told, Naomi could have asked, what did you do? And I and I went and picked grain from the field, but what you see is that a lot more has started to happen. God has put the wheels in motion. And so we look and we look at our own lives and think about the ordinary. We look at this story, we think about the ordinary, and it leads us to our third lesson, which is be patient while God's plan unfolds. We have to be patient in these moments because waiting is hard. But Naomi and Ruth are desperate. They're widows, and on top of that, one of them is an outsider. One of them is a foreigner. And so they need something bigger than that. And luckily for them, God has put just such a plan in place. And maybe you've heard the terminology before, but it's called a kinsman redeemer. And this teaching comes from Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. But in those passages, God sets up a system <clears throat> excuse me that will not only keep the land in the family, but will also care... ...for the widows that are left behind, the people who are left behind. See, land was very important in Israel. If you remember all the way back from Abraham, they had been looking forward to their land, to the promised land. That's all they had been looking forward to for so long. And they're finally there. And God says, this is not your land, this is my land. You are merely a tenant of my land. And so in this, they tried very, uh, they went to great extremes to keep the land in the family... And so what happened was, is if a couple, there was a couple and the man passed away, typically a relative of his would marry his widow in order to, again, keep the land in the family, but also as a way to care for the widow. And we've already been told in our story that Elimelech's relative was Boaz. That Boaz um, could possibly possibly be a kinsman redeemer. And that's what we, the readers of this story, that's what we are hoping Four. and so if when we get into chapter 3 uh, today what, what, what we see in that is that Naomi is a good mother-in-law and that's that she's going to start meddling <laughs> not your mother-in-law just me oh um, I hope she doesn't watch this uh, <laughs> so Naomi suggests to Ruth to go, to go to Boaz while he is winnowing barley now, what you see in this is a very Jewish text, because it, she says that, uh, it says that Ruth goes and uncovers Boaz's feet. And you and I don't really know what that means, um, but what we get the gist of here is that Ruth has done something pretty forward. And she said, we have, this relationship has developed, and she's basically saying, now's the time that we should get married. Basically, she's asking for her Redeemer. She's saying, we have a relationship, will you be my Redeemer? And so this is how the story continues in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, because we've all seen a Hallmark movie, we know that there's one last twist. And this is when that comes in the story. And we are hopeful, is this going to work out, or will all fail in the end? This is what it says in verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate, and he took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him. I will say briefly, Boaz is number two in line. This is our twist. We had hoped that Boaz would be the kinsman redeemer, and what we come to find out is he's not first in line, and he cannot just jump the line, even if he does want to marry Ruth. This is what Boaz says. Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, and I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want to buy the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Oh, this is where the crowd gets depressed, right? The story continues. Then Boaz told him, "'Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. "'That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's names and keep the land in the family. "'Then I can't redeem it,' the family redeemer replied, "'because this might endanger my own estate. "'You redeem the land. I cannot do it. "'Now in those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase "'to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. "'This publicly validated this transaction.' So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, You buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. And the crowd goes wild, Right? Because it worked out, but you've seen a Hallmark movie, so you knew it would work out. And you are so excited, because we didn't know how this story would end, but we knew that God was at work all the time. And something that's interesting to me in this last text is, where were Naomi and Ruth? They are nowhere to be seen. See, so many times, we as people, and even for our characters in the Bible, we want them to do something. We as people want to go, and we want to act and what we see here is in their lesson is waiting patiently they had they had done their forward move in the chapter before, but now they're waiting and as I told the kids earlier, waiting can be the most challenging thing because when you're acting, you have some semblance of control. you have something you can do, but when you're waiting, you're trusting in the Lord and you're giving him control instead of keeping it for yourself and waiting is hard, and we know this anytime we have to wait whether it's at the airport whether it's on our drive here around the metro the waiting is hard and what we see here from Ruth is that she gave control and faith over to someone else over to God and what we see in the story is that God was present all along and he has brought their story back from emptiness to fullness back from bitterness to joy back from death into life and this is our story as well that today's you came in here, and I don't know what you were waiting for, but we were all waiting for something. Maybe you are going through a very difficult time in your life, and you are waiting for some relief. You are waiting for a situation to be redeemed. Or maybe now is a good time in, in your life. You, too, are still waiting. See, we have been given a promise. We know what the future holds, but we are still waiting until that time. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of our future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, We must wait patiently and confidently. This is how we wait. This is the example that Ruth gives us as well. We wait patiently and confidently because we know and proclaim with our lives what Jesus has done on the cross. We know that he has made all things new and that time has not yet come. You have the Holy Spirit as a deposit of what is to come. But while we wait, we still may suffer and struggle But we know that our waiting is not in vain. We know that it is for his glory. So like you, God has put, like Ruth, God has put you somewhere. God, I don't know where God exactly has put you. He may have put you in your workplace. He may have put you in the specific neighborhood that you're in. But God has put you somewhere and you are called to be faithful there just as Ruth was faithful. God has put you in a place. And it may look ordinary. There may not be a lot of highs, and Lord willing, there's not a lot of lows. But what you go about doing may look ordinary. But God is at work in the ordinary. God is always moving. And so we wait patiently. Because we know that God is making all things new. And we patiently wait for that moment. In closing, I'll call the praise team back to the stage. But here's something I don't want you to miss, church. That though we're all waiting, some of us through suffering, others of us all together waiting for Jesus to return, we don't wait alone. We wait together. Just as Naomi had Ruth, you too have a church family that waits with you. God didn't intend for this to be something that you did by yourself. This is why we call and ask you to join us in prayer every week. Our shepherds today and their wives will be around the room asking to pray with you. That isn't just a mere formality, it's because we will wait with you. We will sit with you in whatever it is that you're dealing with, and we will be there with you. You don't wait alone, but through prayer and encouragement, you have others with you. And so won't you respond to that today? Always stand and sing.